23, which is to say, when he is out of funds he works hard, he will swing a 200-pound sack to his back and do fancy steps as he marches with it up the springy gangplank to the river steamer's deck, uttering now and then a strange, barbaric snatch of song, he has no home, no family, no responsibilities, an ignorant deckhand can earn from 40 to 100 dollars a month, pay him off at the end of the trip, let him get ashore with his money, and he is gone, without deckhands the steamer cannot move, for many years there has been known to a river captain the simple way out of this difficulty, pay the rousters off a few hours before the end of the trip, say there are 20 of them, and that each is given 20 dollars, they clear a space on deck and begin shooting craps, no one interferes, by the time the trip ends most of the money has passed into the hands of four or five, the rest are broke and therefore remain at work. Yet despite the ingenuity of those who had the Negro labor problem to contend with, Mars Harris tells me that there had been times when the levee was lined with steamers, full loaded, but unable to depart for want of a crew. Not that there was any lack of roustabouts in town, but that, money being plentiful, they would not work. In such times perishable freight rots and is thrown overboard. I am conscious of a tendency, in writing of Vicksburg, to dwell continually upon the Negro and the river for the reason that the two form an enchanting background for the whole life of the place. This should not, however, be taken to indicate that Vicksburg is not a city of agreeable homes and pleasant society, or that its only picturesqueness is to be found in the river and Negro life. The point is that Vicksburg is a patchwork city. The National Park Hotel, its chief hostelry, is an unusually good hotel for a city of this size, and Washington Street, in the neighborhood of the hotel, has the look of a busy city street, yet on the same square with the hotel, on the street below, nearer the river, is an unwholesome Negro settlement, so it is all over the city, the white folks live on the hills, while the niggers inhabit the adjacent bottoms, nor is that the only sense in which the town is patched together. Some of the most charming of the city's old homes are tucked away where the visitor is not likely to see them without deliberate search. Such a place, for example, is the old Klein House, standing amid lawns and old-fashioned gardens, on the bluff overlooking the Mississippi. This house was built long before the railroad came to Vicksburg, cutting off its grounds from the river. A patch in the paneling of the front door shows where a cannonball passed through at the time of the bombardment and the ball itself may still be seen embedded in the woodwork of one of the rooms within, and there are other patches, near the old courthouse, which rears itself so handsomely at the summit of a series of terraces leading up from the street, are a number of old sand roads which must be today almost as they were in the heyday of the river's glory, when the region in which the courthouse stands was the principal part of the city the days of heavy drinking and gambling, dueling, slave markets, and steamboat races, these streets are not the streets of a city, but of a small town, so, too, where Adams Street crosses Grove, it has the appearance of a country lane, the road represented by a pair of wheel tracks running through the grass, but Cherry Street, only a block distant, is built up with city houses and has a good asphalt pavement and a trolley line, chapter XLVII the baffling Mississippi as inevitably as water flows down the hills of Vicksburg to the river, the visitors thoughts flow down always to the great spectacular, historic, mischievous, dominating stream, Mark Twain, in that glorious book, Life on the Mississippi, declared, in speaking of the eternal problems of the Mississippi, that as there are not enough citizens of Louisiana to take care of all the theories about the river at the rate of one theory per individual, each citizen has two theories, 
That is the case today as it was when Mark Twain was a pilot. I had heard half a dozen prominent men, some of them engineers, state their views as to what should be done. Each view seemed sound, yet all were at variance. Consider, for example, that part of the river lying between Vicksburg and the mouth. Here, quite aside from the problem as to the hands in which river control work should be vested a very great problem in itself three separate and distinct physical problems are presented. From Vicksburg to a Red River landing there are swift currents which deposit silt only at the edge of the bank, or on sandbars. From Red River landing to New Orleans the problem is different, here the channel is much improved, and slow currents at the sides of the river, between the natural river bank and the levee, deposit silt in the old, borrow pits, pits from which the earth was dug for the building of the levees filling them up, whereas, farther up the river, the borrow pits, instead of filling up, are likely to scour undermining the levee, from New Orleans to the head of the Passace these being the three main channels by which the river empties into the gulf the banks between the natural riverbed and the levees build up with silt much more rapidly than at any other point on the entire stream, here, there are no sandbars, and the banks cave very little, in this part of the river it is not current, but wind, which forms the great problem, for the winds are terrific at certain times of year, and when they blow violently against the current, Waves are formed which wash out the levees. This is the barest outline of three chief physical problems with which river engineers must contend. There are countless others which have to be met in various ways. In some places the water seeps through, under the levee, and bubbles up, like a spring, from the ground outside. This, if allowed to continue, soon undermines the levee and causes a break. The method of fighting such a seepage is interesting. When the water begins to bubble up, a hollow tower of sand-filled sacks is built up about the place where it comes from the ground, and when this tower has raised the level of the water within it to that of the river, the pressure is of course removed. On the siphon principle, as river control work is at present handled, there is no centralization of authority, and friction, waste, and politics consequently play a large part. Consider, for example, the situation in the state of Louisiana, here Control Island broadly speaking, in the hands of three separate bodies, one the United States Army Engineer, who disperses the money appropriated by Congress for levies and bank revetment, working under direction of the Mississippi River Commission, to the State Board of Engineers, which disperses Louisiana state funds wherever it sees fit, and which, incidentally, does not use, in its work, the same specifications as are used by the government, and three the local levy boards, of which there are eight in Louisiana one to each river parish a parish being what is elsewhere called a county. Each of these eight boards has authority as to where parish money shall be spent within its district, and it may be added that this last group considering the eight boards as a unit has the largest sum to spend on river work. The result of this division of authority creates chaos, and has built up a situation infinitely worse than was faced by General Gothels when Congress attempted to divide control in the building of the Panama Canal. It will be remembered that, in that case, a commission was appointed, but that Roosevelt circumvented Congress by making General Gothel's head of the commission with full powers. While the canal was in course of construction, General Gothel's appeared before the Senate Committee on Commerce. When asked what he knew of levee building and work on the Mississippi, he replied, I don't know a single, solitary thing about the work on the Mississippi except that it is being carried on under the annual appropriation system. If we had that system to hamper us, the Panama Canal would not be completed on time and within the estimate, as it will be. That system leaves engineers in uncertainty as to how much they may plan to do in the year ahead of them. 
big works cannot be completed economically, either as to time or money, unless the man who is making the plan can proceed upon the theory that the money will be forthcoming as fast as he can economically spend it. In view of the foregoing, I cannot myself claim to be free from river theory. It seems to me clear that the Mississippi should be under exclusive federal control from source to mouth, that the various commissions should be abolished, and that the whole matter should be in the hands of the Chief of United States Engineers, who would have ample funds with which to carry on work of a permanent character, as one among countless items pointing to the need of federal control. Consider the case of the Tensaw Levy Board, one of the eight local boards in Louisiana. This board does not build any levies whatsoever in the state of Louisiana but does all its work with Louisiana money, in the state of Arkansas, where it has constructed, and maintains, 82 miles of levees, protecting the northeastern corner of Louisiana from floods which would originate in Arkansas. These same levees, however, also protect large tracts of land in Arkansas, for which protection the inhabitants of Arkansas do not pay one cent, knowing that their Louisiana neighbors are forced, for their own safety, to do the work. Cairo, Illinois is the barometer of the river's rise and fall, the gauge at that point being used as the basis for estimates for the entire river below Cairo. These estimates are made by computations which are so accurate that Vicksburg, Baton Rouge, and New Orleans know, days or even weeks in advance, when to expect high water, and within a few inches of the precise height the floods will reach. Some years since, the United States engineer in charge at a river district embracing a part of Louisiana, notified the local levy boards that unusually high water might be expected on a certain date and that several hundred miles of levees would have to be kept in order to prevent overflow. The local boards in turn notified the planters. In sections where capping was necessary, one of the planters so notified was an old Cajun Cajun being a corruption of the word Acadian, denoting those persons of French descent driven from Acadia, in Canada, by the British many years ago. This old man did not believe that the river would rise as high as predicted and was not disposed to cap his levy. But, said the member of the local levy board, who interviewed him, the United States engineer says you will have to put two 12-inch planks, one above the other, on top of your levy, and back them with earth, or else the water will come over. At last the old fellow consented. Presently the floods came. The water mounted, mounted, mounted. Soon it was halfway up the lower plank. Then it rose to the upper one. When it reached the middle of that plank the Cajun became alarmed and called upon the local levy board for help to raise the capping higher still. Mumber, said the local board member who had given him the original warning. That will not be necessary. I have just talked to the United States engineer. He says the water will drop tomorrow. The old man was skeptical, however, and was not satisfied until the board member agreed that in case the flood failed to abate next day, as predicted. The board should do the extra capping. This settled. A nail was driven into the upper plank to mark the water's height. Sure enough, on the following morning the river had dropped away from the nail, and thereafter it continued to fall. After watching the decline for several days, the Cajun, very much puzzled, called on his friend, the local levy board member, to talk the matter over. Say, he demanded, what can demand these United States engineer island anyhow? First he tell when the water comes, then he tell Jews how high she comes, then he tell Jews when she's a-going to fall. What kind of man is dead? Anyhow, is he been one voodoo? The spirit of the people of Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana, who live, in flood time, in the precarious safety afforded by the levees, 
is characterized by the same optimistic fatalism that is to be found among the inhabitants of the slopes of Vesuvius in time of eruption. One night, a good many years ago, I ascended Vesuvius at such a time, and I remember well a talk I had with a man who gave me wine and sausage in his house, far up on the mountainside, at about two o'clock that morning, seventeen streams of lava were already flowing down, and signs of imminent disaster were at hand. Aren't you afraid to stay here with your family? I asked the man. Mumber, he replied. Three times I have seen it worse than this. I have lived here always. And, with a good Italian smile, it is evident, signore, that I am still alive. Less than a week later I read in a newspaper that this man's house, which was known as Casabianza, together with his vineyards and his precious wine cellars, tunneled into the mountainside, had been obliterated by a stream of lava precisely as he went about his affairs when destruction threatened. So do the planters along the Mississippi. But there is this difference, against Vesuvius no precaution can avail, whereas, in the case of a Mississippi flood, foresight may save life and property. For instance, many planters build mounds large enough to accommodate their barns, and all their livestock. Likewise, when floods are coming, they construct false floors in their houses, elevating their furniture above high water mark so that, if the whole house is not carried away, they may return to something less than utter ruin. It is the custom, also, to place ladders against trees, in the branches of which provisions are kept in time of danger, and to have skiffs, containing food and water, ready on the galleries of the houses. Chapter XLVII Old River Days Among the Honored Citizens of Vicksburg, at the time of our visit, were a number of old steamboat men who knew the river in its golden days, among them. Captain, Mose, Smith, Captain Tom Young, Captain W.S., Billy, Jones, and Captain S.H. Parasop the latter probably the oldest surviving Mississippi River captain. We were sent to see Captain Parasop at his house, where he received us kindly, entertained us for an hour or more with reminiscences, and showed us a most interesting collection of souvenirs of the river, including photographs of famous boats, famous deck loads of cotton, and famous characters among the latter the celebrated rivals, Captain John W. Cannon of the Robert E. Lee and Captain Thomas P. Leathers of the Natchez. Captain Parisov knew both these men well, and was himself aboard the Lee at the time of her famous race with the Natchez from New Orleans to St. Louis. We left New Orleans 31 two minutes ahead of the Natchez, said Captain Parisov. Made the run to Vicksburg in 24 hours and 28 minutes. Beat her to Cairo by 1 hour and 12 minutes and to St. Louis by more than three hours. Captain Parisop's father was a soldier under Napoleon I and moved to Warren County, Mississippi. After having been wounded at Moscow, he built, at the foot of Main Street, Vicksburg, the first brick house that city had. There was a law in France, said the captain, that any citizen absent from the country for 35 years lost all claim to property. My father's people were pretty well off. So in 42 he started back but he was taken ill and died in New Orleans. Captain Parisot was born in 1828, and in 1847 began learning the river. In 1854 he became part owner of a boat, and three years later purchased one of his own. I bought her in Cincinnati, he said. Then, reflectively, he added, there was a good deal of drinking in those days. When I brought her down on her first trip I had 183 tons of freight, and 500 barrels of whiskey from Cincinnati, for one little country store Barksdale and McFarland's, at Yazoo City, there was a good deal of gambling, too, wasn't there, 
one of us suggested. There was indeed, smiled the old captain. Every steamboat was a gambling house, and there used to be big games before the war. How big? Well, he returned, as Captain Weathers once put it, it used to be nigger ante and plantation limit, and that's no joke about playing for niggers either. Those old planters would play for anything. I've known people to get on a boat at Yazoo City to come to Vicksburg, and get in a game, and never get off at Vicksburg at all just go back to Yazoo, yes, and come down again, to keep the game going. There was a saloon called The Exchange near our house in Yazoo, and I remember once my father got into a game, there, with a gambler named Spence Thrift, that was before the war. Thrift was a terrible stiff bluffer, when he got ready to clean up, he'd shove up his whole pile, well. He did that to my father. Thrift's pile was $2,200, and all my father had in front of him was 800 But he owned a young Negro named Kelvin, so he called Kelvin, and told him, Here, boy, jump up on the table. That equaled the gambler's pile, and it finished him he threw down his hand. Beaten. Business in those times was done largely on friendship. It used to be said that I owned the Yazoo River when I was running my line. I knew everybody up there. They were my friends, and they gave me their business for that reason, and also because I brought the cotton down here to Vicksburg, and reshipped it from here on, down the river. It was considered an advantage to reship cotton because moving it from one boat to another knocked the mud off the bales. There used to be some enormous cargoes of cotton carried. The largest boat on the river was the Henry Frank, owned by Frank Hicks of Memphis. She ran between Memphis and New Orleans and on one trip carried 90 to 26 bales. Those were the old-style bales. Of course, they weighed 425 to 450 pounds each, as against 550 to 600 pounds, which is the weight of a bale today. Now that powerful machinery is used to make them, the heavy bale came into use partly to beat transportation charges, as rates were not made by weight, but at so much per bale. The land up the Yazoo belonged to the state and the state sold it for 1.25 per acre. The fellows that got up there first weren't any too anxious to see new folks coming in and entering land, used to try all kinds of schemes to get them out. There were two brothers up there named Parker. One of them was a surveyor we called him Baldy and the other was lumbering, getting timber out of the cypress breaks and rafting it down. Almost all the timber used from Vicksburg to New Orleans came out of there. One time a man came up the Yazoo to take up land and went to stop with Baldy Parker. When they sat down to dinner Baldy took some flour and sprinkled it all over his meat. What's that? Asked the stranger. Quinine. Says Baldy. Haven't you got any? Mumber says the fellow. What would I want it for? You'll find out if you go out there in the swamps. Baldy tells him. It's full of malaria. We eat quinine on everything. The fellow was quiet through the rest of the meal. Pretty soon they got up to go out, and Baldy took up a pair of stove pipes. What do you do with them pipes? Asks the stranger. Where in? Of course, says Baldy. Haven't you got any? Mumber says the fellow. What for? Why? Says Baldy. The rattlesnakes out there will bite the legs right off of you. With that the fellow had enough. He didn't go any farther, but turned around and took the boat down the river. In all his years as captain and line owner on the river, Captain Parisot never lost a vessel. I never insured against sinking. He told us. Just against fire. But I got the best pilots I could hire. In all I built 27 steamboats. I had 150.000 worth of boats when I sold my line in 1880. 
after I sold they did lose some boats. Later we saw Captain, Billy, Jones, a much younger man than Captain Parasot, yet old enough to have known the river in its prime. Captain Jones deserted the river years ago, and is now a golfer with a prosperous banking business on the side. Captain Parasot was right when he said business on the river was done largely on friendship, said Captain Jones. Also business used to be turned down for the opposite reason. There was a historic case of that in this town. Captain Tom Leathers was in the habit of refusing to take freight on the Natchez if he didn't like the shipper or the consignee. For some reason or other he had it in for the firm of Lampkin and Eggleston, wholesale grocers here in Vicksburg, and declined their freight. They sued him in the circuit court and got judgment. Leathers carried the case to the Supreme Court, but the verdict was sustained and he had to pay 2,500 damages. He was furious. What's the use, he said, of being a steamboat captain if you can't tell people to go to hell? It is the lamentable fact, and I must face it, and so must you if you intend to read on, that the language of the river was rough. At least 99 out of every 100 river stories are, therefore, not printable in full. Either they must be vitiated by deletions, or interpreted at certain points by blanks and blanketies. As for me, I prefer the blankety blanks and I consider that this method of avoiding the complete truth relieves me of all responsibility. And of course, if that is so, it absolves, at the same time, good Captain, Billy, Jones, or anyone else who may have happened to tell me the stories. Both Leathers and Cannon were large, powerful men, and they always hated each other. Leathers was never popular, for he was very arrogant, but he had a great reputation for pushing the Natchez through on time. Also, such friends as he did have always stuck by him. Something of the feeling between the two old river characters is revealed in the following story related by Captain Jones, Ed Snodgrass, who lived in St. Joseph. Lo, was a friend of both Cannon and Leathers. When the Natchez would arrive at St. Joseph, he would go and give Leathers news about Cannon and when the Lee came in he would see Cannon and tell him about Leathers. Well, one time Leathers was laid up with a carbuncle on his back, and brought a doctor up on the boat with him. So, of course, Ed Snodgrass told Cannon about it when he came along. A carbuncle, eh? said Cannon. Yes, said Education, well, said Cannon. You tell the old blankety-blank-blank that I had a brother a bigger, stronger man than I am and he had one of them things and died in two weeks. Soon after that Cannon made a misstep when backing the Natchez out, that Natchez, and fell, breaking his collarbone. Of course Ed Snodgrass gave the news to a Leathers when he came along. Huh, said Leathers, his collarbone, eh? You tell the old blankety-blank-blank that I wish it had been his blankety-blank neck. I asked Captain Jones for stories about gambling, after the war, he said, there weren't the big poker games there used to be, mostly we had sucker games then. There was a gambler named George Duval who wrote a book or, rather, he had somebody write it for him, for he was a very ignorant fellow, and began his life caulking the seams of boats in a shipyard. He had a partner who was known as Jumos, who used to dress like a rich planter. He wore a broad-brimmed hat and a very elegant tailcoat, and was a big, handsome man. After the boat left New Orleans, this Jumos would disguise himself with whiskers and goggles, go to the barber shop and lay out his game. George Duval and a fellow called Canada Bill were the cappers. They would bring in suckers, get their money, and generally get off the boat about Baton Rouge. Once when I was a clerk on the Robert E. Lee, Duval got a young fellow in tow, and the young fellow wanted to bet on the game, but he had a friend with him, 
and his friend kept pulling him away. Later, when Duval had given up the idea of getting this young fellow's money, and closed up his game, he appeared in the social hall of the boat with a small bag held up to his face. Somebody asked him what was in the bag. It's hot salt, he said. I've got a toothache, and a bag of hot salt is the best thing in the world for toothache. Presently, when he went to his stateroom to get something, he left the bag of salt on the stove to heat it up. While he was gone somebody suggested, as a joke, that they dump out the salt and fill the bag with ashes, instead, so they did it, and when Duval came back he held it up to his face again, and seemed perfectly satisfied, how does it feel now, one of the fellows asked, fine, said Duval, hot salt is the best thing going, that that, the man who had prevented the young fellow from betting, down in the barber shop, earlier in the day, offered to bet Duval a hundred dollars that the bag didn't contain salt, Duval took the bet and raised him back another hundred, but the man had only fifty dollars left. However, another fellow, standing in the crowd, put in the extra fifty to make two hundred dollars aside. Then Duval opened the bag, and it was salt. He had changed the bags, and the fellows who worked up the trick were his cappers. One of the old-time river gamblers was an individual, blind in one eye, known as One Ed Murphy. Murphy was an extremely artful manipulator of cards and made a business of cheating, one day, shortly after the Natchez had backed out from New Orleans and got underway, Marion Knowles, a picturesque gentleman of the period, and one who had the reputation of being polite even in the most trying circumstances, and no matter how well he had dined, came in and stood for a time as a spectator beside a table at which Murphy was playing poker with some guileless planters, Mr. Knowles was not himself guileless, and very shortly he perceived that the one-ed gambler was dealing himself cards from the bottom of the pack. Thereupon he drew his revolver from his pocket and rapping with it on the table addressed the assembly, Gentlemen, he said, speaking in courtly fashion, I regret to say that there is something wrong here. I will not call any names, neither will I make any personal allusions, but if it doesn't stop, damn me if I don't shoot his other eye out, I cannot drop the river, and stories of river gambling without referring to a one more tale which is a classic. It is a long story about a big poker game, and to tell it properly one must know the exact words. I do not know them, and therefore shall not attempt to tell the whole story, but shall give you only the beginning. It is supposed to be told by a Virginian. There was me, he says, and another very distinguished gentleman from Virginia and a gentleman from Kentucky, and a man from Ohio, and a fellow from New York and a blankety-blank from Boston, that is all I know of the story, but I can guess who got the money in that game, can't you? Chapter XLIX What Memphis Has Endured An article on Memphis, published in the year 1855, gives the population of the place as about 13.0001 quarter of the number slaves, and calls Memphis the most promising town in the southwest. It predicts that a railroad will someday connect Memphis with Little Rock, Arkansas and that a direct line between Memphis and Cincinnati may even be constructed. This article begins the history of Memphis in the year 1820, when the place had 50 inhabitants. In 1840 the settlement had grown to a 1.700, and 15 years thereafter it was almost eight times that size. Your Memphian, however, is not at all content to date from 1820. He begins the history of Memphis with the date May 8th. 1541 a time when Henry VII was establishing new matrimonial records in England, when Queen Elizabeth was a little girl, and Shakespeare, Bacon, 
Galileo and Cromwell were yet unborn, for that was the date when a Spanish gentleman bearing some personal resemblance to Uncle Joe Cannon though he was younger, had black hair and beard, was differently dressed and did not chew long black cigars arrived at the lower Chickasaw Bluffs, from which the city of Memphis now overlooks the Mississippi River. This gentleman was Hernando de Soto, and with his soldiers and horses he had marched from Tampa Bay, Florida, hunting for El Dorado, but finding instead, a lot of poor villages peopled by savages whom he killed in large numbers, having been brought up to that sort of work by Pizarro, under whom he served in the conquest of Peru. It seems to be well established, through records left by de Soto's secretary, and other men who were with him, and through landmarks mentioned by them that de Soto and his command camped where Memphis stands, crossed the Mississippi at this point in boats which they built for the purpose, and marched on to an Indian village situated on the mound, a few miles distant, which now gives Mound City, Arkansas, its name, 132 years later Marquette passed by on his way down the river, and nine years after him La Salle, but so far as is known, neither stopped at the site of Memphis, though they must have noticed as they passed that the river is narrower here than at any point within hundreds of miles, and that the Chickasaw Bluffs afford about as good a place for a settlement as may be found along the reaches of the lower river, being high enough for safety, and flat on top. The first white man known to have visited the actual site of Memphis after De Soto, was De Bienville, the French governor of Louisiana, who came in 1739. De Bienville found the Chickasaw village where De Soto had found it two centuries earlier, but whereas de Soto managed to avoid battle with the inhabitants of this particular village, de Bienville came to attack them, he fought them near their village, was defeated, and retired to Mobile, thus this part of the United States belonged first to Spain, and then to France, but in 1762 France ceded it back to Spain, and in the year following, Spain and France together ceded their territory in the eastern part of the continent to England, the next change came with the revolution, when the United States came into being, the Spanish were, however, still in possession of the vast territory of Louisiana, to the west of the Mississippi. In 1795, Galloso, Spanish governor of Louisiana, came across and built a fort on the east side of the river, but was presently ousted by the United States. In 1820, as has been said, the settlement of Memphis had begun, one of the early proprietors having been Andrew Jackson. Some of the first settlers wished to name the place Jackson, in honor of the general, but Jackson himself, it is said, 